Hey y'all, what if you really could change your life? If there was a way to be healthy and intentional in every area of your life? Good news, there is. And we show you how each week on All of You Whole. Hosted by me, Caroline Fossil, entrepreneur, wellness expert, author, and speaker. Every episode is an in-depth look at how to help you get unstuck, be brave in your life choices, and have a meaningful life all either from my own experiences or from the experts I interview. My goal is to help you build a healthy, connected, and intentional life that fulfills your greatest purpose. We don't have a vocabulary for talking about class oppression Mm. in in this country the way Mm. other countries do and the way that Black people have an identity around Blackness. Like poor and working class people don't have a collective identity and sense of themselves as an oppressed people who could organize and demand better. That's so true. So there are unions, right? Which is good. But so, so it's, it's true that, that a poor person growing up in a modular home doesn't have the same privileges that I do. And it's also true that if that person were black, in addition Mm -hmm. to having all the attributes, they would probably have more obstacles to overcome. Today on the show, I welcome Jill Nagel. Jill is the co-owner of Evolutionary Workplace that supports the inner and outer work of dismantling white supremacy. We are going to get deep into the topic of white supremacy today, and I hope that you are open and receptive to this topic and learn just as much as I did. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Welcome to the show, Jill. We are just so honored and thankful to have you here today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. So some people might immediately be surprised to find that I'm interviewing a white woman about dismantling white supremacy. You are a white woman who teaches other white people how to talk to other white people through your work with Evolutionary Workplace. So I'm curious, how did you decide that this was your mission in life? Well, I've always been anti-racist. It kind of comes with the territory. My Aunt Phyllis integrated a segregated bus at the age of 19 in 1946. And she went on to fall in love with the genre of Black literature and Mm. shared a Black studies department. Wow. (laughs) Uh, In South Florida. Yeah. And the whole time she did it for 25 years, she always said, if ever a Black person wants to take over from me. I'm more than happy to step aside and nobody ever did. That's, mm. that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> that's awesome though. But I came into feminism around the same time I came out to myself and then to the world as mm. bisexual. And that was in, in the mid eighties. And more recently with post George Floyd's murder and watching how the world reacted, I reconnected with an old friend and colleague who had been the most influential to me in terms of developing and polishing my own lens about the effect and the presence and the the harm of what I call white supremacy mythology. Mm. I'll get into that more later. It's not that white supremacy doesn't exist, that the, the notion of white superiority is mythological. Right. And like a myth, it permeates so much of what we do. Mm. And I had already been doing some organizational consulting and expanding that into 
the buzzwords in the industry are diversity, equity, inclusion, mm-hmm. and sometimes belonging. But really, to me, it's about dismantling white supremacy mythology. Right. Not yeah. everybody likes to hear that because it sounds so stark and so truthful. <laughs> Not everyone wants to hear the truth. Let's be honest. I think it's really common for white people to be nervous of the backlash of being anti-racist from black people or whoever, whoever we're speaking out for. And it's easy to feel like every time you speak, you could do something wrong, right? Like, let's say you're centering whiteness and you don't realize, or you're zooming in to be the white savior or whatever it is. And I have found this in my like tiny bit of work that I've done in this space is sometimes I get really scared and I'm tempted to say nothing at all. So I'm curious, how do you combat those feelings? I would say that foundation of my work, first of all, is being withness. And that is a word that means learning to be with all of the difficult feelings that come up. And the reason that our feelings around this are so difficult, like so many white people feel like, oh my gosh, if I try to help, I'm a white savior. If I say nothing, I'm complicit. If I talk about things, I'm centering myself. What the heck do I do? And right. So... That is a phenomenon that itself is a product of where we are right now Mm. as a country and trying to reckon with all of the invisible and difficult to understand fallout of centuries of unexamined white supremacy mythology. It's kind of like when you have a little bit of slack, when you have a little bit of an opening, which is a good thing, it's almost like you give permission for everything that everyone's ever been caring for their whole lives. They just kind of come crashing through. Yeah. And then it's scary and it's big and it's full of feelings and it's mm-hmm. full of step, feeling like we're stepping on toes. And that's kind of like, imagine if you were in a family or in a relationship where there was all kinds of harm happening, but no one ever talked about it. Right. And then suddenly oh, yeah. somebody says, what about points to the elephant in the room? And it just unleashes everything. Yes, you know? totally. Yeah, I think that absolutely happens. So I'd really love to dive into this topic of what you call white supremacy mythology. It's such a necessary conversation, as you know. So first of all, can you define white supremacy mythology for us? Mm-hmm. So let me take it term by term. First of all, I'm not saying that white supremacy and its effects don't exist. Some people say, what are you denying? No, (laughs) I'm doing the opposite. Whiteness itself was a fiction created for the purposes of oppression to distinguish light-skinned people of European descent from either the First Nations people that we were slaughtering or from the people of African descent that we were enslaving. There's Mm -hmm. no biological basis for race. It's a social category and it's different in different parts of the world. Right. So whiteness itself, it exists socially, but it doesn't exist biologically. So it's based in that alone is based in the mythology and the supremacy part. So supremacy. Wait, but I want to back up. So what do you mean by there's no biological difference? Like tangibly, what does that mean? Oh, so we we talk about races, but actually there is no, there's no biological basis for 
distinctions among races. We're one race, the human race. And that's not a philosophical mm-hmm. or feel good yeah. perspective, even though it might sound that way, but it's actually a scientific fact. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's so good. Mm-hmm. However, race has a social reality. Right. And if we are going to, and it gets tricky because some people want to say, oh, but you know, we're all one and I don't see color. And they want to kind of gloss over the social right. reality of racism, of white supremacy's effects. And so there's whiteness. Whiteness is a social category. I have white privilege. I'm perceived to be white because I look like a light skinned person of European descent, which I right. am. There's mm-hmm. some people who are not of European descent who get perceived to be white and get mm-hmm. white privilege. But I happen to be one. I'm also Jewish, which makes it really interesting because I counted there's approximately 150 cousins that I would have today if some relatives of mine had not been murdered in the Holocaust. Wow. Right. Talk about being pro-life. Yeah. (laughs) Goodness. And that the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust was based in white supremacy and Aryan notions of the blonde haired, blue eyed uber human right it's a white supremacist notion mm-hmm. i saw pictures of proud boys wearing the six mwe t-shirts are you familiar with this not that six mwe uh-uh it stands for six million wasn't enough <gasps> right so it's not like anti-semitism has just blown away uh, the of smoke right uh so there's man. that there was a shooting in a synagogue. And at the same time, I walk out into the world. Nobody follows me when I shop at the store. Mm-hmm. I can walk in and get a, a housing rental without discrimination. My life was pretty darn easy just because right. of the way I look, right? Right. <sighs> Man. So this, yeah. So supremacy also has different connotations. It can mean sure. is better than like, I consider this band to be superior, supreme mm-hmm. over this other one. And it can also mean prevails. And to prevail over someone else, you don't need to be better than them. You just need to have more ammunition or greater numbers, mm-hmm. right? So that part is true that white people have violently prevailed mm-hmm. over indigenous people, over people of African descent. The thing is that we've done so with this lie in tow that we are superior and we're right. not, mm-hmm. we're not superior. There's so much, for example, African intelligence discovery, oh, yeah. inventions that have been silenced right? because presumably white people don't like evidence that black people are smart and mm-hmm. have contributed to society. Either um, silenced or also stolen, right? So like this black person invented this thing, but we're crediting a white person. Yes. Yeah. So many instances of that. The mythology part is, as I mentioned, that it isn't true, but mythology is also stories and practices and beliefs through which a culture organizes itself. Right. Through which a culture makes sense of the world around it and through which mm-hmm. the culture sort of stacks its beliefs. Right. So mythology has to me the sense of being deeply infused in the mm-hmm. culture. And you can see that if you look at the fact that until very recently, most superheroes were portrayed as light-skinned people of European right. descent. 
notions. Miss America, what is beautiful? What is trustworthy? What is good? Mm-hmm. What is worth t- your time? Has had a white face. Right. And even the studies of children, like super young children, which child is good and bad? A cartoon of a white kid, a cartoon of a black kid, the white kid is good. I'll give you an example. So last night I was watching one of my favorite shows, which is the Orville, which mm. is kind of yet another Star Trek knockoff. Oh, At first yeah. it builds itself as a parody, but now it's some of the episodes are not erotic at all. They have more gravitas than anything else. And mm. so this most recent episode featured a little girl, little girl from a culture that's so misogynistic that, that females simply aren't allowed. They're changed to males the Mocklin at birth. Oh, wow. This was a source of contention between the girls' two dads. And I think that Black people are playing this, the species. And so white supremacy mythology infused itself in this episode. If you put that lens mm. on, it's a very interesting ways. I, want, I don't even want to go into the rest mm. of the episodes. But right. so there's the, like the community and a spoiler alert here, if you haven't seen this episode and you like the Orville, turn this off now and come back to it yeah, later. Yeah, come back later. <laughs> so there's this community of rescued female Mocklins. And the elder is this incredible woman. It's sort of maybe loosely modeled after an African culture, definitely very kind of tribal and something kind of pagany about it. And the captain visits her and goes into her sort of sacred sanctum, her area that she does her work and private. And on the wall is this huge collage of pictures of Dolly Parton. (laughs) This white icon that she is just, she's, Dolly Parton is the most inspiring character to her, right? Who could be more white? And Dolly Parton. Right. It wasn't Oprah. It wasn't Angela Davis. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't like any number of indigenous, African, African descended, Asian people that it could have been Dolly freaking Parton. (laughs) And a turning point in the show comes when the same character goes into this. I don't know if it's called the holodeck in the Orville, but you Mm. know, what was the holodeck in the next generation? And who is there but Dolly Parton? And Dolly Parton is the font of wisdom who tells her what she needs to know and gets her on the right track, right? Right. And then that was one that just really like, I'm trying to enjoy the show. Do you really have to go? (laughs) Right. Do we have to bring this in? Yeah. Yeah. And it was funny and it was well done. It was extremely well written. And Dolly Parton was amazing as this character. So there's all of that in there. And another thing that Cleo Monago, my associate, Mm-hmm. And friend and mentor has pointed out to me time and time again is that representations of black on black love are few and far between. And mm-hmm. often you have the black character falling over themselves to be with a white person because right. again, it's supposed to be so much more desirable. Right. You know? Yeah, there's so many examples. I went to a race workshop once where the host asked white people in the room to define white culture. What really stands out to you about white culture? And honestly, no one in the room, so there were all different races represented, none of the white people 
really could verbalize anything, not a single thing about our culture. And I think one of one of the harms of just white normalcy is us just assuming that our lives and our culture is normal. Like we just think of this as normal and other people's cultures as other, right? And so yeah. I think I think that's a huge problem, but I want to know what do you think are some of the harms of white supremacy? Mm. Well, I want to go back to what you said about white culture and I realize mm. that I'm actually feeling some sadness mm. because you know what blanche means, right? Mm-hmm. It means white also means like you blanch vegetables and you right. boil them, you boil them real to, quick. Yeah. It also means to, to whiten, like she blanched, oh. you know, it means mm-hmm. whiten. And everybody here, every light skinned person in the United States of America came from somewhere else and became white. Right. We yeah. did not have great, great, you know, Whiteness was manufactured for the purposes of oppression. And Mm. because we don't know this, because we just want to be good sons, daughters, non-binary kids, Mm -hmm. you know, grand kids, because we have ancestral loyalties and because it's hard to look at this stuff, we keep upholding it. Right. You know, my ancestors are from Eastern Europe. Do you know where your ancestors are from? Yeah. So I'm mostly German. I'm mostly German. And I'm curious. So what you're saying basically is had my entire family stayed in Germany and had we not immigrated to America, I wouldn't be called white. I would be German. Like that's what, is that what you're saying? I'm saying something like that, that um, in the United States, there's a way that whiteness forms itself against not whiteness. Yes, yes, yes. Right. And mm-hmm. not that you don't have white privilege all over the planet. You do. I mean, my gosh, right. British imperialism. Mm-hmm. If you call the Portuguese white, but they sure did a lot of colonializing. Mm-hmm. Just colonialism in general. Yes. Yeah. But back to, to the United States, mm-hmm. and white culture. A lot of people say, oh, white people don't have a culture. It's a non culture. But our culture is simply the set of beliefs. It's like the mythology that, you know, mm-hmm. how do we construct ourselves? There was a guy who wrote a blog some years ago that became a book called Stuff White People Like. Yes. It was hilarious. Oh, Remember so this? funny. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't even realize the things that you're doing that are so white. Like I'm sitting here with a Yeti cup. That's like the whitest thing ever, right? Like we do things that it feels like if you're in a very white environment, everyone does this. It's not my white culture. It's just everyone does it. And it's, it's like, just normal. No, right. right. And it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. And I think that a lot of people are upset now and you have this whole, you know, have entire groups called, there's nothing wrong with it. It's okay to be white because they aren't used to having whiteness called into question as something that came about mm-hmm. for painful and harmful oh, reasons. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Or they're I, not experiencing white harm, right? So they're not experiencing racism because of whiteness. Yeah. Well, I part of what I am, this idea that I'm working with in this book that I'm working on, right. which is, it's about the benefits to white people of mm-hmm. dismantling white supremacy mythology, because I think it does harm us. I think it hijacks part of our humanity. It, mm-hmm. it corrupts our willingness and ability to look at hard truths. Mm-hmm. And so you're avoiding something. It means that part of your psyche is engaged in keeping a wall between you and that thing. Of course. Right. Right. And so 
like look at a dysfunctional family. Let's take a hypothetical, typical family where dad's an alcoholic, mom covers it up. Mm -hmm. Um, The cheerleader, sister's a cheerleader who just is always trying to keep things perky and happy Mm -hmm. and not deal with the reality. And then the brother becomes a drug addict. And all of the family's attention goes to helping the brother who is now what we call the identified patient. Mm. And so instead of dealing with the source of the problem, which is dad's alcoholism, the family, Mm. in an effort to preserve dad's ego and the family image, focuses on the brother who is expressing something for the family. The brother Mm -hmm. is expressing what's wrong. He doesn't know that he's doing this. Mm -hmm. Mm, That's good. Right. And so I feel like in our collective white family of the United States of America, people like Dylan Roof and Derek Chauvin are doing a similar thing. They're expressing the worst of our white supremacy mythology by harming Mm. black people, physically murdering Mm. black people. But the problem didn't start with them. They are, in a sense, products of this unreckoned with history of murder and oppression. And I say that not to excuse them or to take away accountability. Absolutely. I think we need more oh, accountability. Oh gosh, yeah, less. so much more, right. But to say that to solve this problem, we need to do more than point fingers and say that monster needs to go to jail. We need to mm-hmm. say, how did we create a culture that would produce such a person? And how Ooh. can we undo centuries of harm that led up to this? Mm. Yeah, man, that is so good. That is so good. Yeah. What is, yeah. Like, how do we go back to the root of the problem? I love that so much because I'm into health and wellness a lot. And I talk with people often about what's the root cause. Yeah. You have migraines, but do you have a lack of magnesium? Are you not hydrated? Whatever. And so that's such a good question. What is truly the root problem of white supremacy in America. And, and then the only way you can solve something is really knowing what the true problem is. Well, I know you've done a lot of work in this space. What are some of the things you feel like are most harmful experiences people have because of white supremacy or dangers that come from white supremacy? I think that if we have our eyes or ears or whatever, sensory organs open <laughs> that we mm-hmm. use. We see oh, and we find out about a lot of the mm-hmm. racially motivated harms that are happening. I wanted to go and they, there's so many things like income disparities and right. job discrimination and just on and on that other people are already covering really well and Google is mm. free. And <laughs> yes. Find this out pretty easily. Right. Um, the one thing I wanted to go back to is you were talking about the root cause of the problem. Mm. I think that's really important to ask. And I just started taking magnesium. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah. We tend to think of this culture frames discussions of humans in terms of individuals, mm. right? Individual rights and responsibilities, individual actions. Mm -hmm. We are individual units of production and consumption. Marketers look at our individual behavior and show us ads accordingly. Mm -hmm. And there are really important senses in which we are individuals. And there are other important senses that we don't talk about in which we are part of a collective whole, not just one 
collective whole, but multiple collective wholes. We're mm-hmm. a part of the category of women. We're a part of the category of white people. We're part of the collective whole of our families, of our whole ancestral lines of people in the United States of America. And to be a part of a collective whole means that we can influence that collective and we can also be influenced by it. And we are profoundly constructed by it. Like I, why do I spend the amount of time that I do on my hair? Well, I think it's because I was born as somebody who's identified as a woman and I'm told that I should look a certain way. Right. And I do this stuff to my hair and it takes a long time. (laughs) I I spend this money and it's because of my belonging, whether I want to or not in this collective category called women. Now I've Mm. talked with white people who are very resistant to this work that I'm doing saying, but I don't identify as white and you're Hmm. putting me in this category that has nothing to do with me. And Hmm. it's like, well, at the same time, you're going to get to go grocery shopping today. And probably no one's going to follow you because they think you're trying to steal something. Probably no one's going to clutch their purse because they're afraid you might steal it when you're standing in line. And probably no one's going to ask you for forms of ID if you pay with a credit card mm-hmm. um, because you're a white male, you know? Right. And he didn't want to hear this. Um, so back for a second, I'm going to pick up from there, but back for a second. So I think that one of the things we can start to do to stretch our brains a little bit to make these discussions easier is to start asking the question, what is this one body expressing for the collective and for which collective Hmm. that you know we tend to say what is wrong with that person did they not get enough magnesium did they not get enough sleep were their (laughs) parents unkind to them did they not go to the right schools and how can we help them as the individual yeah back even further we could say like for example around my neighborhood sometimes there are very young men riding very loud I guess they're motorcycles. Mm-hmm. They're kind of too skinny to be, and they're popping wheels and they're not wearing helmets. And the mom in me wants to go get a helmet mm-hmm. on. And I'm thinking they're looking for a rite of passage. Mm-hmm. They're looking for some kind of initiation into manhood. And we don't <laughs> yeah. provide that. Yeah. Right? So what is this body expressing for the collective body? Right. That's so good. Yeah, that's so good. And I I do think that we are such, I mean, it's no secret that in America, we really are an individualistic society. Mm -hmm. And there are so many other societies in which you're always thinking of the group and not thinking of yourself. And it's a collective society. And so I do think that there are harms, like you're saying, that are associated with that individualism. And one thing that you said reminded me of, I have this theory that, (laughs) that every problem in the world, it comes back to lack of connection. Mm -hmm. And we think of our food system and it's so broken and we have such a lack of connection to the earth and the food that we're growing and the people who grow it and our farmers and all of these things. And, and one thing that I noticed, I just took a road trip with my kiddos to South Dakota and North Dakota, Mm -hmm. and we went to all these national parks and it was funny because it reminded me of some of the things I've posted about white supremacy, anti-racism, all of these things. I've had people literally post, 
racism is dead. Racism <laughs> doesn't exist. And you are part of the problem. Like you yep. are continuing it. Yeah. Like, like yep. drop it basically. Right. Yep. And what was interesting about being in South and North Dakota was it's a primarily, it's like a farming community. I did not see one black person my entire four days, not one. Right. And so it's an interesting concept, I think. And, you know, I don't know where the person who said racism is dead. There's not racism in my neighborhood. I don't know where they live or what their community's like, but I would venture to guess that either they live in a pretty much entirely white community like South Dakota, or maybe they are in this echo chamber where they only see white people, right? And so they feel like it's dead. And it's like, no, you're just not connected to the problem. You're not connected to anyone who is not the same race as you. And so then you can start to believe like a completely different mythology that everything's fine. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's all fine. Yeah. So this mindset that you described of this person, I'm guessing it was a man, nine times out of ten, but not always, saying racism doesn't exist, you're the problem. I developed, and I'm and I'm not the first one to develop this, but I've been working with it pretty extensively, something I call mm. the white supremacy myth mindset continuum. And it's basically kind of a stacked list of the different ways that white people the different mindsets that white people express living in white supremacy mythology based culture. And, you know, you can see them if you look around. So one, oh, yeah. and one at far end of it is, you know, the overt white supremacist who maybe is a member of white supremacy group like the KKK and burn mm-hmm. crosses on wands. And, mm-hmm. and it's kind of how they build their identity um, mm. around being white. And then there are people who may feel that way, but they don't express it as overtly. Right. And then there are people who are really invested in denying that racism exists. And they'll say things like, you're the problem by bringing this up. We're post-racist. And no, la, 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 I can't see, I can't hear. And then there are people who, they really want to be good white people. Mm -hmm. And um, they'll say things like, we don't see color in this family. Mm -hmm. And in one of my workshops, this woman, I knew her from, prior work in her seventies looked at, you know, the examples that I gave and she said, everything you say here is verbatim what my family told me growing up, mm-hmm. you know, and that's how, where I got this, just listening, looking around and listening. And then there are folks who react to what's going on around us. Like maybe they go to a protest and Cleo Monago has pointed out to me that a, a lot of white people are, are doing this sort of reactionary dissociation thing of, this is bad, but it's not me. I'm not that white person. That's the bad white yes. person over there. Let's talk about how bad they're, but not about us giving up white privilege. Right. Not about challenging the system, challenging the system so much that it would be any inconvenience whatsoever to us. And seriously, who does want to be inconvenienced? Who wants right. our life to be any harder than it already is? Sure. I don't. Right. Really, I don't. I just don't want it to be as hard as it has been for my black and brown. Yes, absolutely. Well, why do you think white people can tend to be so hesitant to, number one, even accept that these problems exist? And then number two, be so hesitant to solve the problem, right? Like if we get to start a hundred meters ahead, let's call that white privilege, we get to start a hundred meters ahead in the race. Why are we not willing 
to even the playing fields? Why are we so hesitant to do that? I was talking about the white supremacy mythology mindset continuum. Mm. And I stopped at the react like reactionary caring. And I wanted to mention that beyond that is moving towards being in a place that's really committed to undoing this. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, so here's where it gets tricky because you were just asking why are people resistant? So I think that white supremacy mythology lives in our bodies Mm. and it braids together and binds with familial trauma, ancestral trauma. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot, like a lot of people walk around with a lot of shame, Mm -hmm. even like white upper middle-class kids are, are, a lot of us are raised with this notion that we are our accomplishments, that we aren't inherently good or worthy of love, that if we graduate from this kind of school and if we have this kind of job, then we get stuff. Yeah. And so we have kind of a core of shame and unworthiness. And like the stuff that we get by succeeding is about succeeding in a white supremacist system. Mm-hmm. Right. But if we've never looked at that, and if we're walking around thinking that we're pretty darn cool because we made it in the system and that anybody who hasn't is not so cool or probably didn't, or what I hear is they didn't work as hard as I did. Right. Right. Like, like they're lazy and I'm working really hard. And so I graduated college and they didn't. And it's like, yeah. And this culture doesn't have, like some cultures have a commitment to care for everyone within the culture. You don't fall through the cracks just because you're having a bad year. You get time off when you have a baby. We don't, we like, employers want us to jump through hoops to prove we're worthwhile. And that's, I'm not blaming the individual employers or anything. This is part of the system that we're mm-hmm. in. And so if you're carrying around, I'm not saying that everyone is, but if you're right. carrying around this core of shame, maybe you were abused, maybe you were just raised upper middle class and thought that your entire worth is based in your outer achievements. Mm. And somebody says, hey, whiteness itself is problematic it's going to hit on your shame because mm-hmm. at least so for if you're poor a lot of poor and working class people who thought that these policies that were going to make their lives great again would work <laughs> they're finding now and Jonathan Metzl talks about this in his book Dying for Whiteness mm. how the politics of racial resentment is killing America's heartland where he looked <sighs> at people in Kansas and other areas over time that these policies are actually resulting in more gun violence, right, more of course. drug yeah. abuse, more mm-hmm. suicide, more mm-hmm. alcoholism, more joblessness. But at least they're white, right? So I call this the broken promise of whiteness, that mm. working class whites in this country, poor working class whites, were doing all of this work that moves the country, that keeps the country going, right. um, get the message that they're at least they're superior, even though they may be being oppressed by owning class and upper middle class white people, at least they're still white. And maybe one day they can be a billionaire like Donald Trump. (laughs) Yeah. I also got a ton of pushback talking about the, this exact group of people that you're referencing. Like I don't have white privilege because I grew up in a modular home in the middle of Appalachia or whatever it is. And so I think that's a tough concept to swallow too. 
Yes. Um, so I want to say there's, can I just mm, jump into that? Please. Because there's two sides to that. One of them is we don't have a vocabulary for talking about class oppression mm. in, in this country, the way mm. other countries do and the way that black people have an identity around blackness, like right. working class, poor and working class people don't have a collective identity and sense of themselves as an oppressed people who could organize and demand better. That's so true. So there are unions, right? Which is good. But so, so it's, it's true that, that a poor person growing up in a modular home doesn't have the same privileges that I do. And it's also true that if that person were black, in addition Mm -hmm. to having all the attributes, they would probably have more obstacles to overcome. Right. And that's the thing that's hard to understand. It's not you're stamped with white privilege. It's all the same, right? Like I might have more white privilege than, well, let's say this. I privilege is a spectrum of lots of different things. And so it's when people hear I have white privilege, they're thinking of their overall privilege and thinking I don't have much overall privilege because I might not be wealthy. I might not have a great education. I might not have a lot of promise. My parents X, Y, Z. And that's a whole nother conversation. That's in like your full privilege. And so I think that that's what people tend to think. Like, I don't feel, I don't feel the effects of white privilege like some other people do because my overall privilege is potentially lower. So I want to talk briefly about your upcoming book. You mentioned Skin in the Game, How White People Benefit from Dismantling White Supremacy. So you've shared with us some spoilers from your book, but I'm curious, what are some of the ways that white people can benefit from white supremacy. And let's be clear, not that we need to, we just need to dismantle white supremacy, even if, even if we gained nothing from it, but I am curious about this title and what are some of the ways we can benefit? Wait. So the the title is how white has the phrase, how white people benefit from dismantling white supremacy. Are you asking about that or asking about, Oh, okay. Well, the main thing is that white supremacy mythology has hijacked our consciousness in ways that we're not aware of. Mm-hmm. And now, right now, I'm just talking about the benefit to white people because obviously there's a huge yeah. benefit to black and brown people. And if right. everyone were safer, if everyone mm-hmm. had more access to the things that to meet basic and even deeper human needs, we would all be better off. So that. A lot of people have said that already. Yeah. Um, what I'm saying is that white supremacy mythology messes with white people's brains and mm-hmm. ways that we're not even aware of, and that we can reclaim more of our full humanity when we start to undo this. And it lives in our bodies. And there's a number of fantastic somatic or body based approaches to undoing the harmful effects of white supremacy mm. within our white bodies. Wow. Resma Menicum wrote a, book, a couple of books, one called My Grandmother's Hands mm. and another one called The Quaking of America. There's a group called Holistic Resistance. There's uh, Abolitionism, which I believe is also associated with Resma Menicum. So there's a whole slew of folks just kind of rising up now and bringing somatic or body-based healing therapeutic insights to 
dismantling white supremacy mythology. Mm, so good. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that we're doing that is to look at how it lives in our bodies, even things that seem like they may have nothing to do with white supremacy mythology, things like anxiety and mm. urgency and how we, what, what, like, for example, when you were in, in South Dakota and the guy says, you didn't, racism is dead. You're part of the problem. What was happening in their body before they said that? Mm. What, what were they invested in? Like, what, what were they upholding and what were they denying? And, mm-hmm. you know, these things happen in the body before we say a word. And to me, the words that are being said are indicative they're indicative of what is happening in the body. White supremacist, an overt white supremacist is not in good shape emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, be, it's, yeah. it's something that I talk about with my kids a lot. It has to do with racism. But in general, we talk about there's no us and them. So whether that's white people versus black or brown people, or like, I don't, I hate talking about they, oh, those people, right? It's just, and I think that a lot of white supremacy is, I, is feeling like my values are most important. What I, the way that I live my life is right. And so if someone lives their life in a different way, that challenges my core beliefs and feelings. And so if someone else is right, then I'm wrong. And that feels like a hostile thing. And uh, yeah, I think, I do think that robs us of humanity. There's only us, there's no us and them. And when we live in our brains in a us versus them, it, I think a lot of people think it makes me feel superior, but honestly, that's just like a bully, right? Like you learn in fourth grade about bullies and they put other people down to make themselves feel better. But at the end of the day, they feel terrible, (laughs) right? Like it's the same thing. And I I do think that we have, we're wired for tribe. We're wired Mm -hmm. for recognizing who belongs to us. And it's only, you know, it's only in the last sort of blink of an eye of human history that we have had the opportunity to look beyond the 150 or so people that were part of our clan or mm-hmm. our group. So I want to recognize that. And that I think that in a lot of ways, white people, many of us are yearning for a sense of belonging to a clan or oh yes, an affinity group or a tribe. And we've been so dispersed throughout the world and our, our history with regard to this land is so fraught. And if you think about it, nobody in the United States has an unproblematic relationship to this land. First Nations people were nearly wiped out. Many people living today are the ancestors of the people who nearly wiped out the First Nations people. Right. Coming from places where we were also traumatized. People of African descent were forcibly brought here, enslaved and subjected to, as Resma Menikin puts it, 250 years of legal rape. So many, many black people with light skin today are products of that non-consensual intermingling Mm -hmm. of ethnic backgrounds. Jews, like my family came over here looking to stay alive. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, So we're all bringing these histories and we're carrying it in our bodies. We're Mm -hmm. carrying it, we're feeling it in our precious bodies. And what are we doing instead of healing it? We're getting into arguments. We're polarizing, we're canceling each Mm -hmm. other. We're unfriending each other instead of really deeply reckoning Mm. with this history of trauma, of abuse, of pain. Yeah. um, 
And so that's why I like to work with people on being with what comes up in our body and laying down new neural pathways of connection, mm. of learning, so important. opening, of discovery, finding new ways of being that are not exploited. Mm-hmm. What would that look like? Yeah. What a concept. Okay. We have about five minutes left. I really want to know, I am an action item kind of person. So I want to know, we've talked about a lot of different ways that white people can be harmful in this space. So I want to know from your experience, what are some appropriate ways that white people can help to dismantle white supremacy? Well, so one thing that we do in my workshops is when you encounter another white person, who is saying things that you think are racist Mm. instead of canceling them Mm. because you know as asia davis says human potential project and white people doing something group she says one less racist in your life is not one less racist in my life Mm. so instead of unfriending them instead of canceling them instead of calling them names try lean in and try to engage them if you can do nothing else ask them can you tell me more about that How did you come to feel that way? Right. Because what happens when you show a reaction like that living in someone's body, a little bit of kindness, a little bit of spaciousness, Mm. it can unravel itself. If you put them down, you can just feed the shame that's holding Mm. that in place in the first place. Wow. And that is not to excuse. That is not to condone or excuse racist behavior in any way, shape, or form right. to approach it in ways that are truly transformational, not simply dissociative, right. not simply saying you're the bad white person. I'm going to tell you just how bad you are. And in so doing, I'm going to reinscribe my notion of myself as a good white person right there. I'm done. Yeah. But what if absolutely. I transform? Nothing. Yeah. And if you say to someone that's racist, I'm leaving this conversation, conversation over right? Versus if you say, tell me more about that. Oh, that's interesting. How did you, <laughs> how'd you arrive there? <laughs> or even, then, Oof, that's hard to hear. I'm going to try to stay with this conversation, even yes, though it's hard for me. But I'd but like to hear more. Where did you learn that? Mm-hmm. How'd you land there? Yeah, that's yeah. really good. I think it's easy to say this is toxic. I'm out. But that's such a great perspective that Unfortunately, that racist person is still raging through the world, even if you decide to unfriend them. And it's an act of our white privilege to protect our own sense of comfort by refusing to engage with them. Wow. Yeah, that's true. Oh, so good. Well, thank you so much. I want people to connect with you more. So if people want to attend your workshops, get your book, all the things, where can people connect with you online? Well, so first of all, I just want to say that my book is still in the proposal stage and I'll be seeking an agent starting in September. Yay! Um, And in the meantime, evolutionaryworkplace.com. You can get on my mailing list. You can... Perfect. See, and I'm also on Medium, although I haven't written there in a while. I'm going to start re-upping my account on TikTok, which is skin in the game separated by underscores. Oh, fun. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. And we look forward to having you back soon. Thank you. 
Wow, what an impactful show, you guys. Jill, thank you so much for joining us today. Everyone, I hope that you were as impacted by this episode as I was. The thing that stuck out to me the most was this concept that if we decide to just cut someone who is racist out of our lives, then yeah, they might not be in our life, but they are still out in the world being racist to our black and brown friends. And so being willing to ask questions to have those tough, stressful conversations is part of our mission as white people who are choosing to be anti-racist. So I hope that you, like I, will continue to have those tough conversations. And I will see you next week. 